Israel taking out a Hamas commander in Gaza. This has preparations for a ground invasion continue. Food, medicine and water expected to cross into the Gaza Strip today. What Israel is concerned about for this convoy of eight trucks. The search for the suspect who shot and killed 18 people Wednesday night. Law enforcement is combing the area where he abandoned his car. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer calls on President Biden to explain a $200,000 payment from his brother. The latest development in the inquiry into his family's alleged influence peddling. Billions of dollars to Ukraine. The European Union is planning a new aid package. Find out why Hungary's Viktor Oban says sending money is a failed strategy. The sudden death of China's former premier Li Keqiang. What are the reactions of Chinese residents and world leaders? What stories lie within New York City's most famous public park? We take a walk through a leafy landscape to find out. Why should men care about style? We visit Sartoria Studio, a style lounge and retail store for men in New York City's Soho to find out. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives. On the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Maine residents remain sheltered in place as suspected shooter Robert Card is still at large. Public schools in the area are still closed as well. Congresswoman Chelly Pingree described the eerie scene on the streets of Portland, Maine, following the Lewiston shooting that left 18 dead and 13 injured. This is a, a terrible tragedy for our state. And frankly, our state is still in fear and lockdown. Uh, communities throughout the state are still worried about the shooter that's on the loose. The House Democrat said she supports her state's strong gun culture, but that more gun control is needed. She supports a ban on so-called assault weapons, expanded background checks, and red flag laws. The suspect in the killing reportedly received psychiatric treatment over the summer after he said he was hearing voices. A father is speaking out after his son was killed during Wednesday night's shooting. Here's a look. I'm sure this man, whatever happened to his mind, I'm sure he wasn't born to be a killer. And instead of, I'm sure, a father and a mother that would have never believed this would have happened with him. So all I can say is I'm sorry that it's happened to all of us, and I'm sorry what may happen to him. And God will prevail. Hate will never bring my son back. Leroy Walker Sr. added that his faith would help him cope with his tragic loss. Israel reportedly killing a Hamas commander in Gaza. This as Israel continues raids into the Gaza Strip. The raids are believed to be preparations for an expected ground invasion. During the last day, infantry forces, combat engineering and armed forces accompanied the fighter jets, carried out a targeted raid in the center of the Gaza Strip as part of the preparations for the next stages of the war. 
The Israeli military says it killed the commander of a Western Hamas battalion. They also struck over 250 Hamas targets, including a terrorist tunnel network in Gaza that detonated a secondary explosion. Israel also updated the number of hostages it suspects were kidnapped by Hamas. The new number is now at 229. The military says it notified the families. And Israel today said an aerial threat was spotted in the Red Sea region. They linked this to a projectile that landed on Egyptian coastal territory. In recent hours, an aerial threat was spotted in the Red Sea region. Combat helicopters were scrambled in response to the threat, and this matter is now being investigated. To our understanding, the strike that took place in Egypt originated in this threat. Israel will work with Egypt and the United States and bolster regional defenses against threats from the Red Sea region. Egypt's army spokesperson said that an unidentified drone crashed on Friday morning in a town in the Red Sea region. The incident reportedly injured six people. The U.S. military carried out airstrikes in Syria near the border of Iraq today. The Pentagon says the targets were being used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated terrorist groups. President Biden ordered the airstrikes. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin stated, Iranian-backed attacks against U.S. forces are unacceptable and must stop. A defense official says two F-16 fighter jets using precision munitions carried out the attack and that weapons and ammunition facilities were taken out. A statement from the Pentagon said precision self-defense strikes are a response to recent attacks that spiked on October 17th. The U.S. is bolstering its presence in the Middle East as attacks on U.S. and coalition forces rise. The Pentagon says it's deploying roughly 900 American troops to protect U.S. forces and interests overseas. The news coincides with the shipment of a TAD missile defense system and more Patriot missile batter batteries in the region. The Pentagon says U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria were attacked three times yesterday. That brings the total attacks in the last week to 16 and 19 since the war began in Israel. 21 U.S. personnel reportedly sustained minor injuries. Iran's foreign minister warned the U.N. yesterday if Israel does not stop its offensive, the U.S. will, in his words, not be spared from this fire. Another eight trucks carrying food, medicine and water are set to cross into the Gaza Strip today. There's still no, no agreement to get fuel in Gaza. Israel is concerned that Hamas will intercept the deliveries. We have seen some deliveries of trucks starting. They started on the 21st of October. We have gotten in approximately 74 trucks. We're expecting another eight or so today. The UN Palestinian Refugee Agency said the impasse is jeopardizing life-saving humanitarian operations there. Officials are also grappling with the issue of deciding how to distribute aid. Gazans lined up on Friday outside a U.N. water station, eager to fill up bottles with fresh water. Supplies of food, water, medicines and fuel are critically low for Gaza's 2.3 million people. But Israel and others have raised concerns about whether that aid would actually make it to civilians. The European Union will provide over $50 million in humanitarian aid to Gaza. 
European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made the announcement yesterday. This is on top of their existing pledge. You might recall uh, the humanitarian aid for Gaza was planned 25 million and a week ago approximately we tripled it to 75 million euros. Now um, these additional 50 million have to be implemented. Von der Leyen said it's very important for the EU to continue efforts to deal with the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The president of the European Union Council, Charles Michel, echoed her comments. Michel said the EU is in contact with regional leaders to encourage humanitarian solutions and the release of hostages. The United States on Friday expanded its effort to cut off funding for Hamas. The Treasury Department announced a second round of sanctions against people and organizations linked to the terrorist group. The new measures highlight Iran's role in providing financial, logistical and operational support to Hamas. Sanctions include a Hamas representative in Iran and members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. The Deputy Treasury Secretary traveled to London to shore up support for the, from the UK. The sanctions freeze any U.S.-based assets owned or controlled by the named individuals and organizations. They also prohibit financial transactions with the sanctioned individuals or organizations. How are Israeli communities going about recovering? Next, we speak to the director of the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, about the people of the region devastated by the October 7th Hamas terror attack. Dr. Susan Michael, thank you for joining us. Your organization has been working with Jews in Israel for decades. You were at the Gaza border, your organization was at the Gaza border days before the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. Tell us about the people living there before the attack. Yes, uh, our organization did a rally. We took about 600 Christians down into the Gaza area to meet with the security there, the communities, and just encourage them. Our organization has worked in that area for years. We've placed over 200 bomb shelters in those vulnerable communities. So they're friends. We know them, we love them, and our hearts are broken over what has happened to them. And these people live in a community known as Kibbutz. Historically, this place has been, yeah, a peaceful agricultural communes. They've had a lot of peaceful agricultural communes there. Tell us about this place. Yes, it's a, a largely rural area, not large cities um, in, down in that area, and a lot of small communities. They were agricultural. Uh, they were there because, of course, it's a, a lower cost of living in that area. It was dangerous, but they were united, and they really hoped for a better day. And some of them were involved in helping the Palestinians in Gaza. They employed 20,000 Palestinians from Gaza every day that came into that area to work, and they really longed for peace. They do not deserve what they've gotten. And how are these communities responding to the October 7th attack now? Well, they are evacuated. They are empty. A lot of them are destroyed. So the area is empty now. And in Israel, there's 120,000 Israelis who are displaced persons because their homes are either destroyed or they've been evacuated for security. We are working to uh, help house, feed, and clothe them, provide trauma counseling, we're running food banks around the country. Um, we're doing a lot to help. It's a, it's a tremendous time of need. And the world 
wants to rally for the Gazans who are suffering, but no one talks about the Israelis who are suffering. Uh, they're also out of their homes and evacuated, and so we're there helping them. And Susan, you're the director of the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem. Why is there this interfaith connection here? Um, I will say that over the history of our organization, we've seen a whole new day of Jews and Christians working together after uh, centuries of terrible relations and centuries of actually Christian anti-Semitism at times. We now enjoy a whole new relationship with the Jewish people, and it's one built on mutual respect. And our organization has been blessed to have been one of the pioneers uh, in building this new day of Jewish-Christian collaboration. And part of that collaboration involves calling on the UN, um, the pre President Joe Biden, as well as presidents of numerous universities to stand with Israel, condemn Hamas, and sanction Iran. Why do you feel there isn't already unified support for these ends? Well, we, we felt the need to write to the United Nations because uh, we were not hearing the right tone out of the United Nations. And unfortunately, just this week, the general secretary refused to condemn Hamas and this terrorist attack and instead placed the blame on Israel. So uh, the, the UN, I believe, has just been totally discredited at this point. And there are actually calls for the resignation of the secretary general. Um, so secondly, we, we did write to President Biden thanking him for his great show of support for Israel thus far, but encouraging his help at the United Nations and also asking for his help in freeing the hostages. And then lastly, as you said, we did another letter to the presidents of over 300 universities across America asking them to have moral clarity and defining anti-Semitism and enforcing it on their campuses and also providing greater support and safety for their Jewish students who many of them are afraid. Uh, some of them are, are hiding in their rooms. They, they don't want to reveal they're Jewish because it's gotten so uh, dangerous and volatile on their campuses. So we felt the need to speak up on their behalf here in the United States. All right, Dr. Susan Michael, thank you so much for your time. And as the Pentagon boosts forces in the Middle East, what role can the U.S. play in the region? Next, we hear from retired Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, an international military strategist, for his analysis. Colonel Gobb, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. To begin with, as a retired military officer with extensive experience, could you offer some insight into the objectives behind the recent deployment of 900 troops to the Middle East in response to the attacks on American forces? Yes, yeah, Stefan, thank you for having me on. And I think one of the things we're looking at, first of all, is the potential to have to evacuate uh, some American civilians from the region. So that's called a non-combatant evacuation operation. The time, last time we tried to do that successfully was actually out of Afghanistan. So that that um, shows you that uh, it takes a lot of people to make sure that kind of thing happens. But additionally, there's an increased risk to American forces throughout the Middle East, both in Iraq, Syria, and other locations that uh, those soldiers may be necessary to uh, assist with. 
Now, their specific mission remains to be seen, but there, uh, there are many uses for American soldiers right now uh, in the Middle East. And given your military experience, what strategies do you think should be employed to prevent the Israel-Hamas war from escalating? Well, I think it's difficult right now to be able to say that it, it can be de-escalated in some respects with using American forces or uh, even the threat there of their use. But uh, the deterrent effect is worth it. I think that's so far a, a working strategy. But the other thing I would be concerned about, frankly, is American forces in places like Iraq or Syria, where their strategy and their purpose there are largely undefined. And so we're leaving American soldiers out there, in, basically in the desert in the Middle East, that are exposed to attacks from multiple enemies who um, probably they shouldn't be there. That's one of the things I would consider doing is just not having American forces there in the first place. And air defense systems and elements are being deployed to deter further violence um, against Israel in the region. And how? What do you think is the significance of that in terms of the broader military strategy of the U.S. here? Well, I think that's significant in the fact that uh, it's a deterrent effect. It's a it's defense, and it's not defined as offense. So um, we're doing our best to make sure that we're going in there to be a protector, and that's about it. Because right now we're not prepared to say that we're we need to be on the offense against, well, frankly, anybody. And Congress has not authorized anything like that in the first place. And that's Congress's job, not the president's. He can't make that decision. So that's that's critical to know as well. But uh, those air defense systems are on the way, and they're actually spread in, in uh, numerous countries. And how do you think the U.S. military could better prote protect U.S. troops over there? Well, first of all, a lot of them are... You know, people like the, the Navy, of course, in the Mediterranean and other in other locations in the seas around around the area, and to keep them there is one good way to to, to protect them. The other way to protect them is to make sure that uh, they're not in the places where they don't need to be. And I would actually consider removing them from some of those countries, especially like Syria, where we're there as more like occupiers than anything else. They've never invited us to be there. So we really shouldn't be there. Their strategy is not defined. So why why risk them in a mission that's not defined or understood or even really constitutionally authorized? So in some way, in some cases, let's just take them out of harm's way. And how do you see the fluctuations in the number of troops who are uh, ready to be deployed to the Middle East at this point, affecting the overall military strategy and the situation on the ground? Well, first of all, I think we're assuming that there is really a, a, a sound strategy in place in the first place at all. And I'm not sure that that's there. I'm not sure it's been shared to the American people who own the decision of whether or not this happens in the first place. So uh, that that's one of my concerns. And what they're doing with them specifically, I'm always concerned about uh, the increasing numbers of American military forces in the region that actually makes it easier to target them or increases the chances of an accident that could cause us to get drawn into a larger war or we could be the cause of a larger conflict. That's, that's something we should be concerned about. And given your expertise in military affairs, how do you think international coalitions and partnerships could play a role in stabilizing things in the Middle East? Well, partnerships are always key to how we do business, and uh, that's whether it be NATO or, 
or other areas around the world. Because uh, if we have a common vision of democratic nations and how we operate, uh, we can all we can all come together and, and improve things. Uh, I think middle, the Middle East is one of the greatest challenges towards that because you know, who do they hate almost as much as Israel is generally Western democracies and specifically the U.S. So we have to weigh the fact that our presence there might actually make, make it worse than better. But um, it doesn't always have to be military either. Uh, there are definitely economic things that we can be doing. In fact, we should be doing first, just like we used to do with Iran before Biden took office. All right, Colonel Darren Gaub, great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Coming up, Texas police may soon be able to arrest illegal immigrants and order them to leave the U.S. It could bring another confrontation between Republican Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Funding for Israel and Ukraine. President Biden proposed one bill which includes funding for both countries. Many Republicans don't agree, saying they're separate issues. Among them, newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. Johnson said yesterday that funding to support Ukraine and Israel should be handled separately, suggesting he will not back Biden's aid package for both countries. Johnson met with President Biden yesterday. He later told Fox News there needs to be more control over the money the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. To know what the plan is, where the money is going to be spent, and we need some auditing for the dollars that we've already sent over there. These are not tough questions, right? Mm -hmm. Israel is a separate matter. We're going to bring forward a uh, standalone Israel funding measure over $14 billion. The House yesterday passed its first bill under Speaker Mike Johnson. The bill allocates almost $60 billion towards energy and water development. This is around $2 billion less than what the Biden administration requested. The bill is likely dead on arrival in the Senate. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips announced he is challenging President Biden in the Democratic primary. Earlier this year, he said he would not run against Biden but would encourage others in their efforts. Phillips told CBS News that he would not sit still when numbers are saying there will be an emergency next November. He also said that Biden has done a great job for the country, but the election is about the future. Phillips has argued that Biden isn't a strong candidate because of his age and low approval rating. His campaign launch comes as Democrats seek to unify around the president and lay out the administration's accomplishments to voters. President Biden is under fire for receiving $200,000 from his brother. It's the latest development in the inquiry into his family's alleged influence peddling. House Oversight Chairman James Comer calling on President Biden to explain the payment. His brother James Biden received the same amount from U.S. company AmeriCorps the same day, according to Comer. Comer sent White House counsel Edward Skissel a letter requesting more details. Biden allies say the check was a loan repayment among brothers. The House Oversight Committee chairman says there is nothing to suggest that President Biden ever loaned his brother the $200,000. Texas is considering giving police broad new authority to arrest illegal immigrants and order them to leave the U.S. The proposed legislation could pit Republican Governor Greg Abbott against the Biden administration over immigration. 
tempers flared over the new proposal in the Texas Capitol. Hispanic Democrat lawmakers led hours of protests, but House Republicans passed the bill on a party-line vote before sunrise. A similar proposal has already cleared the Texas Senate. Republicans will have to agree on a final version of the bill before sending it to Abbott's desk. A city in the San Francisco Bay Area is the first in the nation to officially back Palestinians in Gaza. The Richmond City Council voted Wednesday to support the resolution. The city mayor accused Israel of carrying out a campaign of apartheid and collective punishment. The resolution calls Israel's actions a war crime. Council members argue that Israel is breaking international law by shutting off access to electricity, drinking water, food and aid. One local official criticized the resolution for failing to condemn the Hamas terrorist attacks. Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th, killing an estimated 1,400 people and injuring about 5,000, mostly civilians. The group also took some 220 hostages. And turning now to Washington, D.C., a murder suspect is captured after escaping from police at a hospital nearly two months ago. According to the Metropolitan Police Department, U.S. Marshals located 30-year-old Christopher Haynes in Oxon Hill, Maryland. Police say Haynes was arrested and will face his original murder charge as well as an additional charge for the escape. Haynes escaped from George Washington University Hospital on September 6th after he was arrested for the murder of Brent Hayward. Police said Haynes was taken to the hospital after complaining of ankle pain, but then he physically assaulted an officer and fled with a handcuff on one wrist. Security video showed him landing in a backyard area after he jumped over a tall gate. Oil and gas company BP is buying $100 million worth of electric vehicle chargers from Tesla. It's building up its own charging network. The superchargers won't look like other Tesla chargers. They will be branded with a BP Pulse logo. BP plans to begin installing them next year at various locations, including some at third-party locations like Hertz car rentals. Currently, BP Pulse has 27,000 charging points. This is the first time Tesla has ever sold chargers to another company. A former coal-fired power plant in New Jersey is being raised to make way for offshore wind farms. The towering smokestack of the BBL England Generating Station on the Garden State Parkway was demolished yesterday morning. A lot of coal was built in the, in the, in the 40s and 50s. Um, this is, you know, it, it's moving away from, I guess, considered dirty energy to clean energy. Uh, while not associated with this project, the Ocean Wind Project offshore is, is taking up a lot of headlines uh, for offshore wind and movement to uh, clean energy. The 460-foot-tall structure was a local landmark, but the power plant closed in May 2019 as part of the effort to move away from fossil fuels. 350 pounds of explosives brought the smokestack crumbling down. Crews will use ground-based heavy equipment to demolish two smaller structures at the plant. The demolish demolition clears the way for the waterfront of Great Egg Harbor Bay. The site will be a connection point for several of the state's planned offshore wind farms. The development is likely to include a hotel, a marina, restaurants, shops, and residential housing. Coming up, one of the most powerful storms to ever hit Mexico. Hurricane Otis has claimed the lives of at least 27. What we know about the damage and how the government is responding. 
and military divers practice retrieving explosives from the Danube's riverbed. Belgium, Germany, Hungary and Lithuania are all participating. We'll have the details soon when we return. Staying with us, a Texas man captured a wild video of a tornado sweeping across a stretch of highway in San Antonio. Check it out. Dude, this is bad. Yeah. It's coming right at us, right? It's coming right at us, dude. We gotta go. Well, Watch out, I'm gonna go in the coming right at us. Not something you want to be saying when you spot a tornado. And especially not if you're stuck in traffic. The man said he and his son were stuck at a red light on their way to his son's school when they noticed debris flying through the air. Seconds later, the tornado moves across the interstate. Joint Base San Antonio said in a social media post that a brief, very weak tornado touched down near them Thursday morning. The base said no injuries were reported, but there were reports of damage to vehicles and downed trees. Hurricane Otis claimed the lives of at least 27 people, Mexico's government said on Thursday. After one of the most powerful storms to hit the country hammered the beach resort of Acapulco, causing damage seen running into billions of dollars. More than two dozen people were killed when Hurricane Otis barreled into the Mexican beach resort of Acapulco, according to the government on Thursday. Otis struck Mexico the day before as a Category 5 storm after intensifying unexpectedly quickly off the Pacific coast. It flooded buildings, smashed windows and tore roofs and sidings of homes and hotels. It also cut communications and power, as well as road and air access across the city of nearly 900,000. Survivors of the storm were struck with disbelief at the trail of destruction left behind. I don't know how we're alive, this tourist says. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said Otis was one of the most powerful storms to hit the country. What Acapulco suffered was really disastrous. People stayed in, they protected themselves, and that is why, luckily, we didn't have more deaths. The hurricane was very strong. What we are saying here has no precedent. The government said several people were still missing and has declared a state of emergency in the region. Authorities said they were working to restore electricity and reactivate drinking water pumps. But many remain without basic services. At a gas station that wasn't offering any fuel, this man said people were becoming desperate. Some want to leave, others want to work. There is no gasoline. I hope people don't riot because it's getting serious now, he said. People were also seen looting stores and warehouses for supplies, wading in waist-deep floodwaters outside. Enki Research, which tracks storms and models the cost of their damage, said the impact of Otis was, quote, likely approaching $15 billion. Acapulco is the biggest city in the southern state of Guerrero, one of the poorest in Mexico. Its tourism-dependent economy is now in trouble with many of the city's famous hotels badly damaged by the storm. Now we're heading to Asia. China's former CCP Premier Li Keqiang has died. 
Chinese state media says he died of a sudden heart failure shortly after midnight. He was 68 years old. Li served as China's premier in Shanghai since 2013 when he took office with current regime leader Xi Jinping. He served as the second highest ranking official in China until early this year. Li Keqiang was known as a political ally of Xi Jinping throughout his tenure. He was also the second-ranked member of the seven-man CCP Politburo Standing Committee. But he was dropped from the position last year at a party congress. That was despite being two years below the informal retirement age of 70. He, we will have more analysis in our second half of the show, so stay tuned. And now the biggest news from Europe. The EU now has a plan to support Ukraine with over $50 billion over the next four years. European leaders are still meeting in Brussels today. Here's a look. If we don't help Ukraine, then what is the alternative? Uh, really, I mean, Russia wins. And, and so what happens next? Why do you think that you're safe then when, when we give away Ukraine and don't support them right now? We have a very strong view that uh, Ukraine has a right to defend its sovereignty, its independence, its democracy. It's by no means a perfect country. Um, and there are uh, and have been issues and problems around corruption, for example. Um, but this is a, a war of aggression. EU's overall support to Ukraine totals over $85 billion since the start of the war. Not all leaders agree on support for Ukraine. Slovak Prime Minister Robert Fico expressed reservations and cited corruption in Ukraine. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban also said he wanted the proposal to be better justified before he could agree to it, but neither rejected the proposal outright. While still in Brussels, Orban spoke with Hungarian state radio on the issue. Today everybody knows, but they do not dare to say it out loud, that this strategy has failed. It's obvious that this will not work. The Ukrainians will not win on the front line. Every military expert says this, but the politicians do not yet want to admit it. He also told the station that Hungary is neither able nor willing to give money to Ukraine. The U.S. isn't backing away from Ukraine aid. It's sending $150 million worth of military equipment. The new package announced yesterday by Secretary of State Antony Blinken mostly consists of ammunition and rockets. Specifically, it includes munitions for surface-to-air missile systems and high-mobility artillery rocket systems. Stinger anti-aircraft missiles are also part of the aid. The Pentagon is also sending more than 2 million rounds of small arms ammunitions and night vision devices. In other news related to the Ukraine war, the U.S. now says Russia is executing its own soldiers if they don't follow orders. We have information that the Russian military has been actually executing soldiers who refuse to follow orders. We also have information that Russian commanders are threatening to execute entire units if they seek to retreat from Ukrainian artillery fire. He added that Russia's mobilized forces are under-trained, under-equipped, and under-prepared for combat. And he also said it appears Russia is using human wave tactics, which works by just sending masses of people into the fight without proper equipment, leadership, or resourcing. On the other side of the war, a former Ukrainian lawmaker is in intensive care after being shot. He's a prominent pro-Russian figure. 
He was reported to have been lined up by a Moscow to lead a puppet administration in Kyiv. Officials did not say whether the shooting had taken place. Over to Ukrainian export of goods, President Volodymyr Zelensky now says the Black Sea corridor will continue to function. Multiple sources reported that Ukraine this week suspended use of the corridor. That was due to a possible threat from Russian warplanes and sea mines. However, Ukraine now says the corridor will continue to function despite all threats. Over to the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The prime ministers of the two countries met for the first time since the conflict started. The two were seen together at a dinner at a Silk Road forum in the country of Georgia. Before the dinner, Armenia's prime minister said he hopes to conclude a peace agreement with Azerbaijan in the coming months. The conflict was ignited over a region in Azerbaijan where a lot of Armenians live. Many of the Armenians there have now fled after Azerbaijan's military reclaimed the area for the first time since the 1990s. Spanish police staged an emergency practice drill in Barcelona. The drill was conducted at the main train station to test police response in the event of an attack. More than 500 people, police officers, emergency service workers and volunteers were involved in the simulation. It featured armed men attacking people inside the station and police forces responding accordingly. Police officials say they used new protocols learned from the 2017 terrorist attack in Barcelona when 16 people died and more than 100 were injured. Lastly, military divers have been practicing how to retrieve unexploded munitions from the Danube's riverbed. Belgium, Germany, Hungary and Lithuania are all participating. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the exercise. These divers are preparing for a range of scenarios, removing unexploded ordnance, rescue and recovery operations. For the second year in a row, Hungary is hosting the 10-day exercise. We have currents bigger than one knot, but it's, uh, you can feel it. You can feel the current and it's, uh, you have to fight it <laughs> going under and it's not something we're used to do in Belgium. Hungary and its capital, Budapest, were heavily bombed by both Germany and Allied forces during World War II. After the end of the war, many of those explosives were thrown into the Danube. Nearly 80 years later, much of that ordinance remains lodged in the riverbed. And this is a realistic situation, what we face every day, uh, because usually our divers find a lot of unexploded ordnance near to bridges or renovations of bridges. And this is what we practice now, how to find uh, and uh, lift and dispose these kind of unexploded ordinances. The Danube's current makes Europe's second largest river ideal for training, but that's just one part of the difficulty for divers. The, uh, the specific uh, diving conditions is that he, here we have a high flow, a high rate of flow, a lot of uh, current, the visibility is uh, very low, somewhere between 10 centimeters and a meter. There's also a second training phase. Soldiers from across Europe will dive inside a flooded stone mine deep beneath Budapest. The passages of the former limestone quarry are 80 feet deep. A similar diving technique is required when entering a shipwreck or in a flooded area. Sometimes we must go into a flooded building or basement to find somebody or a piece of equipment. I think it's good if we're up for that task. These military divers will keep sharpening their skills and their training will be critical in real-world missions. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
After the break, a dental care service designed specifically for endangered red wolves. It's a species native only to North America. How are people cleaning their pearly whites and why? And we take a short walk through one of the oldest and biggest public parks in New York City to, to, to discover some of the stories there. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Back, the red wolf, an endangered species and the only type of wolf found exclusively in the United States, is making a gradual recovery. It's thanks to a careful breeding and reintroduction initiative. And the best part? The program isn't just focused on their survival, but also on making sure these wolves have healthy pearly whites too. Take a look. Red wolves are the world's most endangered wolf species native only to the United States. But their populations are slowly coming back thanks to a breeding and reintroduction program that also takes special care of the canine's teeth. They should be a national treasure. So it is a privilege to be able to provide their medical care and it's very important for people to be aware of the species and want to understand them so that they can be protected in the wild and not go extinct. At the Tacoma-based Point Defiance Zoo, veterinarian Karen Wolf and her team are conducting dental exams and teeth cleaning for a nine-year-old wolf known as 2077. He's actually the grandfather of six pups that were born this past spring, and he's the father of a very special wolf that was re-released into the wild. So he is quite a patriarch. 2077 received a thorough cleaning and x-rays, and a diseased molar was removed. The vets also administered vaccines and drew blood to assess his overall health. American red wolves that are in managed care tend to live a lot longer than red wolves that would be free-ranging, and that's because they do have annual exams and dental hygiene. Their teeth are in excellent condition. What you might find in a, in a wild or free-ranging red wolf is broken teeth. Um, you might find um, some fractures in their teeth, which would prevent them from eating meat very well. Meanwhile, at an off-site breeding center, the most recent litter of pups are learning how to howl. They're playing, you know, they're learning how to be wolves, and, you know, learning how to howl for the first time is one of the, honestly, cutest things you'll ever see. <laughs> the pups represent another success in an effort to save the extremely fragile species from extinction. Red wolves once ranged from New York to Texas, but by the late 1960s and 70s, their population was decimated, partly due to an eradication program that killed wolves to protect people and other animals. Today, some 270 red wolves are known to exist, mostly in managed care or zoos. Craig Standridge works for the Red Wolf Safe Program that supports conservation efforts for the species. So my favorite thing, absolute favorite thing about red wolves is the fact that they are the American red wolf. So they're the only wolf species that is native only to the United States of America. So I have a, a great sense of pride in knowing that this animal is our animal. It's, it's out there and we're working so hard to save it because we want it to be part of the landscape for generations to come. How oh, sweet. You know, I pass through Central Park every day on my way to work. 
Wow, that must be so nice, stuff. Oh, it really is. It actually just makes my day. And you know what? It's one of the most visited attractions in the whole world, uh, tourist attractions, that is. Right. But by repeats, but still, everywhere you turn, there's something gorgeous to see. It's just amazing. Um, so I thought I'd bring you all some of that and went searching for some personal stories of the souls that dwell within that grand old park. Central Park, like the rest of New York City, is full of surprises. You might see a castle, a wedding, tons of music, and there's so many stories. So let's see what stories we can find. I'm a Renaissance man and not a Baroque man because I much prefer the way they dressed in the Renaissance right. and in the Baroque. The wet, all that powdered hair and stuff in the Baroque, I can live without. And I definitely like the Renaissance repertoire better than the Baroque. So my lutes are Renaissance lutes. If I was playing Baroque music, I'd get it a different tune. Gerald Farnham has been playing his lute in Central Park for 50 years. Every day when the weather is fine, he's out. He says he's been singing all his life. And when I finished my music education, I wanted to accompany my singing. And what's the point of picking up a guitar? Everybody has one. And this is an amazing instrument. What makes it different to a guitar? Um, um, what, the third string is two and a half sharp down, and these are bass notes, I never fret them. In Scarlet Town, where I was born, there lived a fermate dweller, made every youth cry well a day, her name was Bar. Tai Chung, Violet, and Joe say they used to have a band together. Now they're studying finance and economics at nearby universities. I'm taking a master program of financial engineering at NYU. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of music do you play? We play, we play noise. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like pop music. We're not like, I think we're super shy. So yeah. like, we just play. Oh, yeah. Chinese, Chinese music. Sometimes some but like for. They didn't have a hat out, but they got a quarter anyway. And over by the turtle pond came more mellow tunes. Maya recently graduated from university. I went to school in California, um, and I studied music and psychology. So. 
In this transitional phase, she says she's playing plenty of gigs at festivals and other events. Art shows, stuff like that, yeah. Trying to get my grounding in New York, though, after school. Cool. Yeah. I write a lot of music, um, and I play a lot of originals, which I feel like is kind of unusual for busking. Um, but especially here in the spot, people will sometimes, like, sit and just, like, you can see them, like, relax. Like, they'll come up after and be like, oh, I just need to stop a while and, like, relax, and that really helped. And so maybe that's a psychology move, but, like, I really enjoy just when people come to, like, relax in the park, and it's good, like, mood music, and they, like, listen to lyrics, I think, in that way. Um, that's kind of what I, I hope to have on a larger scale with my originals, definitely. Each song, each moment, original as it passes by. Another day, another story, another surprise. Man, that guy in the Renaissance scarb is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> Gerald. Actually, he tells me that he's performing English Renaissance lute songs Saturday week, that's the 11th of November, at Advent Lutheran Church on Broadway and 93rd at 7.30 p.m., if anyone's interested. Is that an invite? Uh, that is an invite, for sure. All right, let's By go. By donation. <laughs> Did you know that Central Park, it took them 15 years to complete the whole thing? Oh, incredible. I, I didn't, but I could imagine that because there's so much detail and thought in every angle, it seems. Right, and it, it cost $15 million. Incredible. <laughs> All right, well, I think it's worth it. <laughs> exactly. If your thumb is a little less than green, your garden could be talking about you. Wow. A new study shows plants will warn each other about danger. It maps out how they emit orga organic compounds when hurt. Neighboring plants pick up on those chemicals and activate defenses. Prior research suggests plants communicate, but this study goes further. It uses real-time imaging to visibly demonstrate how the process works. This information could help farmers better protect their plants against insect invaders and drought forecasts. The research is out in the journal Nature Communications this month. California's Death Valley is the hottest place in the world and the driest place in North America. But two months after Hurricane Hillary's epic rainfall, parts of the National Park have sprung to life, with lakes and flowers looking more oasis than desert. The National Park Service says Bad Wet Water Basin, the lowest point in North America, is now home to a temporary lake that is several miles long. Hillary dumped a year's worth of rain, 2.2 inches. On Death Valley, in just 24 hours on August 20th, the wettest day in the park's history. Until then, it never recorded more than two inches of rainfall in a single day. That's according to records that date back to 1911. The dry desert soil couldn't absorb the excessive rainfall fast enough, which triggered flash flooding. Damage was so severe, it forced Death Valley National Park to close from late August to mid-October, the longest closure in its history. We have more news after the break. Authorities have an update on the manhunt for main shooting suspect Robert Card. 
Dive teams are now involved in the search. Representative George Santos pleading not guilty to new fraud and identity theft charges. The embattled congressman has refused to resign, demanding due process. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken hosting China's top diplomat Wang Yi. The second day of this trip to Washington, what's at stake in the rare visit? Maine residents remain sheltered in place as suspected shooter Robert Card is still at large. Public schools in the area are still closed as well, following the Lewiston shooting that left 18 dead and 13 injured. Authorities said this morning that divers will search the waters near the dock where the suspect's car was found, and teams will be deployed in the air, on the water, and along the coast. Officials said they found a note in one of the homes they investigated, but added they could not disclose its contents. Congresswoman Chelly Pingree described the eerie scene on the streets of Portland, Maine. This is a, a terrible tragedy for our state, and frankly, our state is still in fear and lockdown. Uh, communities throughout the state are still worried about the shooter that's on the loose. The House Democrat said she supports her state's strong gun culture, but that more gun control is needed. She supports a ban on so-called assault weapons, expanded background checks, and red flag laws. The suspect in the killing reportedly received psychiatric treatment over the summer after he said he was hearing voices. The safety of our community remains paramount. I want to assure all that a tremendous amount of law enforcement, manpower, time, and effort is being utilized around the clock, literally around the clock, in every effort to apprehend the suspect as well as to safeguard this community. The head of the department said that public safety was his number one concern. He added that law enforcement is searching nonstop for card. New York Congressman George Santos appeared in court Friday after being hit with new charges of identity theft and wire fraud. Back in May, federal prosecutors had already charged the House Republican with a slew of offenses, including money laundering and making false statements. Santos pleaded not guilty to those charges and has refused to resign. The congressman took to X, formerly known as Twitter, demanding due process. He also pleaded not guilty to the new charges this morning. The United States on Friday expanded its effort to cut off funding for Hamas. The Treasury Department announced a second round of sanctions against people and organizations linked to the terror group. The new measures highlight Iran's role in providing financial, logistical and operational support to Hamas. Sanctions include a Hamas representative in Iran and members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. The Deputy Treasury Secretary traveled to London to shore up support from the UK. The sanctions freeze and any US-based assets owned or controlled by the named individuals and organizations. They also prohibit financial transactions with the sanctioned individuals or organizations. Potential terrorists coming across the southern border, a Customs and Border Protection report revealed a record number of individuals on the terror watch list have been apprehended in the past year. We speak with Rodney Scott, the former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, for insight on this disturbing influx. Rodney Scott, thank you for joining us. We've seen a record number of individuals on the terror watch list coming across the border. That's for the fiscal year ending September 30th. 
169 individuals to be exact. How do these individuals get, get identified by the Border Patrol as terror watch list people in the first place? Sure. So I do want to highlight this is really 172 because we keep forgetting about the northern border. The 169 is only the southwest border. Uh, those are people the Border Patrol has in custody. Uh, and when they run their fingerprints, uh, photograph and biometric or biographic comparison, uh, it hits off of a terrorist watch list and there's some kind of derogatory information about them in that national watch list. That's how they're identified. And what happens to them after they've been identified? So in that case, uh, they'll be pulled aside and usually the Joint Terrorism Task Force or some specially trained agents or officers will come interview them. Um, and if they are a single adult, uh, they'll be detained in most cases. Uh, but really then that entire process shifts to FBI and immigration and customs enforcement. Um, and it's really, uh, it depends on the specific case what will happen. And Rodney, what lands someone on the terror watch list to begin with? So to get on that watch list, there has to be some type of derogatory negative information about that individual that ties them back to terrorism. It could be that they fund uh, terrorism, or it could be that they have close contacts uh, that through intelligence agencies, FBI, or investigative techniques uh, that have been identified to support terrorism. But the point of this is they have shown up on the U.S.'s radar as a potential threat to this country. It doesn't mean they are, but there are triggers and indicators uh, that indicate that we need to put some additional attention on those individuals. That's what gets them on the watch list. And how many potential terrorists could be in our country right now um, waiting for the right time to strike? So that's a great question that nobody can really answer, but I'd ask people to pause for a minute and look at these massive protests in, in support, direct support of terrorists across our entire nation today. I was watching uh, some different news reporting this morning on college campuses and big cities. We literally have thousands of Americans that have been influenced by somebody or something and people that we don't know who they really are that have snuck across this border that are protesting in support of terrorist organizations. Um, th this is a real threat uh, to our nation, not just the individual terrorist violent acts, but even the mentality and the ability to influence uh, opinions uh, in across the United States. Um, we need to really slow down and think about what we're doing with this massively open border. That's right. And we do know Hamas has infiltrated the United States. We have FBI records of wiretaps going back to the 1980s, um, where Hamas is actually looking to yeah, influence politicians, um, education, uh, raise funds here. Um, all right. That's all we have. Rodney Scott, former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back, President Biden has new competition in his bid for re-election. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips has thrown his hat into the ring to find out what's behind his decision. And a man arrested twice attempting to break into the home of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That, as the Biden administration continues to deny the presidential candidate secret service protection. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips announced he is challenging President Biden in the Democratic primary. Earlier this year, he said he would not run against Biden, but would encourage others in their efforts. 
Phillips told CBS News that he would not sit still when numbers are saying there will be an emergency next November. He also said that Biden has done a great job for the country, but the election is about the future. Phillips has argued that Biden isn't a strong candidate because of his age and low approval rating. His campaign launch comes as Democrats seek to unify around the president and lay out the administration's accomplishments to voters. President Biden is under fire for receiving $200,000 from his brother. It's the latest development in the inquiry into his family's alleged influence peddling. House Oversight Chairman James Comer calling on President Biden to explain the payment. His brother James Biden received the same amount from U.S. company AmeriCorps the same day, according to Comer. Comer sent White House counsel Edward Skissel a letter requesting more details. Biden allies say the check was a loan repayment among brothers. The House Oversight Committee chairman says there's nothing to suggest that President Biden ever loaned his brother the $200,000. And turning now to presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who said yesterday a man was arrested twice after trying to break into his home on Wednesday. We spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, who has been following the candidate's campaign closely. Jeff Lauterbach, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on again. Can you share some of the specific details surrounding the intruder that uh, tried to get into RFK Jr.'s Los Angeles home? What led to his arrest, his release, the restraining order? Well, Steph, that's been a uh, like a month ago or six weeks ago in Los Angeles, there was a, an intruder who tried to get at one of his events there. He was speaking actually not far from where his father was assassinated so so long ago. And a person posing as a federal law enforcement agency or an agent tried to get in, he was arrested. So you fast forward to this week, a man was arrested twice. He, uh, he, he was an intruder on the property trying to get to uh, RFK Jr. He was arrested, he was released, he went back and was rearrested again, so wow. twice. And then, so this has happened uh, over the last uh, six weeks or so. Uh, two separate people have tried to intrude. And how has his campaign responded to these events? Well, it's been widely talked about that he's tried to get Secret Service protection, and uh, he's been unsuccessful at that. And they're concerned about it. They uh, he he spends uh, a lot of money a month. Uh, on his private security. I'm going to be talking to his private security uh, staff member or the director early or uh, later today uh, about an update on that, about what they're trying to do. And it, it's it's a concern for them because obviously he has, uh, he's, he's widely known and he is controversial to some people in his stances. And that brings out, uh, you know, threats. And his campaign submitted a report detailing some of the unique risks to him in terms of requesting that Secret Service protection. Could you outline some of the risks that were outlined in that in that report? Well, it goes back to obviously he's a Kennedy, so one of the high-profile families in the United States, and obviously most people know the track record of uh, the Kennedy family here in the United States. So it's that. But also, he's had strong stances against the uh, COVID vaccine. He's 
called by his uh, cr uh, critics uh, an anti-vaxxer. That's that's been uh, an issue as far as bringing out uh, potential threats. So those are some of them. It's just he is a, a unique candidate. I don't, we haven't seen a candidate like this, uh, at least in in modern history, about his family name being known and his controversial stances uh, in the public eye to some people. So. Yeah, so there and are multiple things. Right, and, and his popularity is on the rise. That's intriguing to note, uh, considering the circumstances, you know, all taken into account. What, what factors are influencing that rise in popularity, would you say? Well, since he entered the race, uh, and originally he entered the race to challenge President Biden for the Democratic primary nomination, uh, it... He, he's across the board, conservatives, moderates, independents, libertarians, moderate Democrats support him, all those people. About the only sector that seems to not support him are progressives, but he has a mix of stances that appeal to a wide spectrum of people. And that's why he, uh, I was in Philadelphia to cover his campaign speech to uh, where he declared as an independent that was october 9th and he talked about that the uh, declare your independence is their campaign slogan that really reflects why he appeals to people because he you... has stances that resonate with uh different sectors and in a recent poll survey it shows that um president trump is still ahead in a three-way race how do you think uh, RFK Jr.'s popularity at this point in time could influence the 2024 election? Well, the polls indicate that he's taking votes from President Biden and President Trump. But if you talk to uh, Mr. Kennedy, he will, he'll, he'll tell you he believes he, he's his own candidate. So I, from what I've seen at these town halls, I've covered a lot of town halls across the country, and I interview as many people as possible while I'm there. I see far more people who voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. I rarely talk to someone who said they voted for President Biden back in 2020. So that goes back to his his widespread appeal because he has certain, obviously his medical freedom is a big thing, but he has he wants to build the border wall. He wants to finish the Trump wall. He wants to, uh, he has some popular stances on the Second Amendment uh, and other conservative issues, and that's why he's getting former Trump voters. Yeah, all intriguing factors here to look at. Thank you so much, Jeff Lauterbach. Great to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Seth. Coming up, an invisible threat hidden in the depths. A report says Beijing is developing a new generation of submarines and if combined with missiles, the fleet could strike the continental U.S. Welcome back. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in a meeting that could foreshadow one between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Wang may also meet with President Biden. His three-day visit is seen as a prelude to a potential summit between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping next month. U.S. officials hope Beijing will use its influence in the Middle East to help prevent the conflict from spreading. 
Washington also seeks to ensure that disagreements with China don't veer into conflicts. Those include issues from trade to Taiwan and the South China Sea. Now we're heading to Asia. China's, foreign, China's former CCP Premier Li Keqiang has died. Chinese state media says he died of sudden heart failure shortly after midnight. He was 68 years old. Li served as China's premier in Shanghai since 2013 when he took office with current regime leader Xi Jinping. He served as the second highest ranking official in China until early this year. Li Keqiang was known as a political ally of Xi Jinping throughout his tenure. He was also the second-ranked member of the seven-man CCP Politburo Standing Committee. But he was dropped from the position last year at a party congress. That was despite being two years below the informal retirement age of 70. Residents in Shanghai said they were shocked and saddened by Li's passing. I feel very sorry. I saw this news when I was in class today, and then I was very sad, because after all, Li Keqiang was quite young. Very sad. He's only 68 years old. We're all in our 70s. He probably hasn't enjoyed his life yet, right? I was really surprised. Li Keqiang in recent years looked well. Then suddenly, it's pretty shocking. World leaders marked the passing of Li Keqiang, Australian Prime Minister Anthony, Anthony Albanese, Indonesian President Joko Widodo, and U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns paid their tributes on X. At a regular press conference today, Japan's Chief Cabinet Secretary said Li played an important role in Japan-China relations. Secretary of State Blinken also expressed condolences while hosting China's Wang Yi yesterday. Li Keqiang was China's top economic official for a decade. During his tenure, he navigated the world's second largest economy. The challenges included rising political, economic and military tensions with the United States, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us now live to discuss is NTD Business host John Ma. Don. How did Li view China's economy when he served as the country's premier? Well, uh, Steph, I think uh, for anyone who is familiar with China and the Chinese Communist Party, they understand that Li Keqiang and uh, Xi Jinping did not really see eye to eye uh, when it came to the Chinese economy. Uh, I'll just explain this very briefly. Uh, so in a, in a nutshell, what Li Keqiang wanted for China's economy was a bit more free um, of course, not to the same degree as the U.S. economy, but more so than uh, what Xi Jinping wanted. Uh, Xi Jinping was more focused on control and the stability of the Communist Party. So, of course, the Chinese economy uh, came in second for him. Uh, Li Keqiang had a Ph.D. in economics. Uh, he was considered a pragmatic economic liberal. Uh, who during his early tenure raised expectations for restructuring China's economy. But as Xi Jinping consolidated power, um, Li's role as premier uh, gradually diminished. And Don, what policies did Li enact for the economy during his tenure? 
Chris, uh, he, he enacted very little because Xi Jinping had so much power uh, that Li couldn't do very much for the economy, uh, even if he wanted to. And I think he, he did see some problems um, back in 2020 when he was still the premier. He said uh, something about the economy that, that was actually a really a slap in the face for the CCP. He said that uh, some 600 million Chinese people, a little less than half, of the entire population in China was making less than 1,000 yuan per month. Now, 1,000 yuan is equal to about $130 US dollars. So 600 million Chinese people were making uh, around $130 a month. So, you know, let's think about that. Uh, it, it seems like Li Keqiang saw a problem in the economy, perhaps he wanted to do something about it, but you know there's nothing that he he could do that would dramatically change the state of the economy. Also, during his time as premier, China went through pandemic lockdowns and the zero COVID policy. What was his stance on that? Of course, uh, officially he had to support most of the CCC, CCP's policies. Uh, he didn't express anything negative about that. Uh, but when she was promoting the zero COVID policy. Li Keqiang was talking about the economy. He, he was not promoting the zero COVID policy proactively alongside Xi in, in some circumstances. And this is a big difference between him and, and Xi. So Li's position on COVID was something like this. He said uh, China should be committed to striking a balance you know, between reviving the economy and containing COVID-19. But, you know, at the end of the day, he is still a Communist Party member. Right. All right. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Another obituary from China, the country's chief epidemiologist, Wu Zunyu, has died at the age of 60. This came just hours after the news of the death of former, the former premier. Wu was one of the public faces of China's harsh zero COVID-19 policy. These measures suspended international travel, imposed long-term, very tight lockdowns, and prompted protests at the end of 2022. China's CDC gave no cause for Wu's death, but said, quote, rescue measures failed. A growing threat from China. A new report saying Beijing is developing a new generation of nuclear-powered submarines expected to be ready in 10 years. The biggest concern is that the new fleet will make it much harder for the U.S. to detect a nuclear strike from launched from China's shores. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the report. The new submarines are called Type 096. The report comes from the U.S. Naval War College, the staff college of the U.S. Navy. It is likely that the Type 096 will, will not only have uh, a better version of the JL-3, but will be quieter and thus even more capable of uh, conducting successful patrols close to China in protected waters where they can launch these missiles that are still capable of striking the United States. JL-3 is China's latest ballistic missiles that can be launched from a submarine. It has a range of over 6,000 miles, capable of reaching the continental U.S. The commander of U.S. Strategic Command said China is equipping its submarines with these missiles. Each can carry multiple nuclear warheads. What else is different about the new subs? They're quieter, so it's harder to detect them. This is a, a very significant advance for China's ballistic missile 
submarine technology, which previously had uh, sh much shorter range submarine launch ballistic missiles and thus had to travel out into the Pacific Ocean where they were much more vulnerable to American submarines. That's not the case anymore. On the note of deterrence, Fisher said the U.S. must invest in its own submarine fleet. And that's what the United States must do. We must spend more to build a larger submarine fleet uh, as a component of our ability to convince China that today or tomorrow or next week is not the time to start a war against the United States. Experts say countries including Japan and India are putting in more effort to track Chinese subs. That's by sending more submarine hunting aircraft to patrol in Southeast Asia and around the Indian Ocean. Welcome back. Get ready for an electrifying adventure. Teams from all corners of the globe zoomed out of Darwin to participate in the wild and wonderful world solar challenge. Their mission? To race their super cool solar powered cars all the way to Adelaide in southern Australia. This epic event spans a whole week with teams going head to head to see who can conquer the journey in the fastest time. It's a high-speed showdown you don't want to miss. Let's take a look. These electric cars are racing against each other across the Australian outback, powered only by the energy of the sun. The Bridgeton Wells Solar Challenge brings together teams from across the world to take part in an over 1,800-mile-long race and push the limits of technological innovation. So we're driving forward efficient car design, uh, and we're also driving forward uh, solar technology and electrical efficiency in general. The challenge starts in Darwin and finishes in Adelaide about five days later, with the cars expected to cover the course in 50 hours. Teams are usually comprised of university students who engineer and build the vehicles. One of the participating teams are from Durham University, Catherine Flanders is the head of logistics for the team. So we don't have any air conditioning in our car, um, so the estimate is that our car is roughly 10 degrees warmer than the outside air temperature, which puts the inside of the car about 50 degrees C. Um, obviously it's very warm, we have an air vent that keeps you cool, but you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't really notice the heat until you're out of it again. The event is designed to showcase a variety of forward-looking EV technologies. This year, prototype Bridgestone tires are being tested. They're designed to reduce the rolling resistance for electric vehicles, increasing range. Organizers and participants say what began in 1987 as a rather quirky challenge is now more relevant than ever as the car industry looks for efficiency in electric vehicle range, power and charging. The event, I believe, is as relevant today, if not more so than it was in the early days. Why are we still playing with solar cars? Because the quest for efficiency never ends. And what we're doing now with our cruiser class cars, and you'll see some of these cars look quite nice sports cars. I introduced that in 2013, the cruiser class, the link between the purely experimental, ultra uh, efficient uh, uh, challenger cars to something that the general public can, can look at and identify with and say, I'd like to drive a car like that one day. Why should men care about style? I visited Sartoria Studio, a style lounge and retail store for men in New York City's Soho to find out.
Jack Minash is the owner of Sartoria Studio, a bespoke retail lounge in Manhattan, New York. Sartoria is the Italian word for tailor shop, and Menashe's store is built around a unique style inspired by his time in Florence, Italy. The Italian men are exquisite. They're fabulous the way they dress. They're perfect. So the way I design and the way I try to make outfits is very f inspired from Florence. The jeans, cuff with the, the brown, with the boot, the vintage boot, with a jacket, with a scarf, and a pocket square. Not stuffy, not dressy, just elegantly cool, chic. Menashe tries to make his store inviting so guys who normally feel intimidated by men's fashion stylists feel welcome and at ease. People that come in here, they don't have a lot of money, say, it's okay, I have in-stock fabrics. I make you something, don't worry, what do you need? It's cool, have a drink. Sit outside, have a cigar. Retail is an experience. If you don't have an experience, you don't have retail. Simple. After clients are charmed by Menashe's charisma and hospitality, they're ready for a style consultation. How does he work his magic? It's easy. It's easy. They don't know what they want. They think they know what they want. They don't know. And then they spend a few minutes showing them what they think they want until I know when they say no, then I take them around. I know what they need. Depends what they need it for. One of Menashe's suppliers visits New York to meet with his clients. Enzo Carfora and his team visit four times a year. The rest of the time, he runs Sartoria Carfora, a luxury tailor shop based in Naples, Italy, where he creates handmade, custom-tailored suits. He employs the traditional suit-making techniques of Naples through a labor of love that can take months. With bespoke, it takes time, but there's also the pleasure of choosing the fabric, the model, talking to the tailor, the pleasure of the fitting process, which is extraordinary. It creates intimacy between the tailor and the client that is impossible in a fast-paced situation. The tailoring process has a significant advantage over made-to-measure because it completely adapts the suit to the client as if it were a second skin. What I try to do is listen to the customer's needs. I never impose myself on the jacket structure or model because, in the end, the jacket belongs to the client and I'm just here to assist. Carfora tells us about Naples, Italy, where his Sartoria, or tailor shop, is based. Naples is full of tailors, a lot of them. I mean, we have a very high artisanal tradition, from bespoke clothing to shirt making, shoes and gloves, we have it all. Currently, in the area surrounding Naples, such as neighboring municipalities and places close to Naples, a sort of Silicon Valley for craftsmanship has emerged. And it's something extraordinary because it is passed down from generation to generation. Suit making is a highly nuanced craft with distinct differences in style between regions. The Neapolitan school is completely different from all of the other Italian tailoring schools, which paradoxically are almost all the same. It's a very lightweight jacket with a slightly more dynamic and shorter cut. Italian style is much more deconstructed, so the jacket is lighter and more practical. English style, on the other hand, has an internal jacket structure that makes it less flexible, less dynamic. 
Whether in Naples or New York, clients are looking to build their own style. Carfora explains what style really means. So style is something that a person creates for themselves. Fashion is something that is imposed on society, so the person adapts to that product. And why should men care about it? Because people want to feel good. And they realize how important it is to have a bunch of, you know, a few iconic items in your wardrobe. You don't need too many, but you need a couple. Then it, they, it gives it that little something. Finally, here's a tip for the man awakening to his inner sense of style. I think it's important for people to have a reference. I also have references, both Italian references like Agnelli and international references like Cary Grant. There are people you can learn from to train your taste. You need to be careful not to take the wrong references, references that are essentially tied to fast fashion and trends. You know, Jack seems like a fascinating guy. Yeah, I know, right? He was great. Actually, he was raised in retail. His father had a very successful retail chain in the 80s, okay. I think it was. And that was sort of how he came of age. Oh, incredible. I love how Enzo said that Naples is the Silicon Valley of artisan crafts. I just love that. I know. Yeah, traditional crafts are so important to keep alive. I mean, they, they connect us to the past and to the future. And they, they, they ensure that the good things of the past and the values and the principles you know, stay with us. Absolutely. Fashion is one way to enjoy the finer things in life, but there's something to appreciate in every moment. It's easy to get caught up in stress and tension, but there's another way to look at it. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. There's a concept in the Japanese tea ceremony from Zen. It roughly translates as one chance in a lifetime or one lifetime, one meeting. It's such a beautiful idea. Any meeting you have with someone is unique, fleeting, and will never happen again. Even if you see this person every day, what would life be like if we could learn this kind of deep appreciation for any moment? You might notice yourself often in a hurry for something you want to happen right away. Or you might want something to be fully finished yesterday. But you might be overlooking the incredible moment that's happening right now. You might notice yourself frustrated with other people even if you don't want to admit that frustration. You might want the other person to be different from how they are or want to change them. Well, you're missing out on the beauty of being with this person just as they are. You might notice yourself wanting to rush around doing things or wanting to fill every moment with distractions, productive actions and busyness. You're missing an opportunity for stillness, for stopping and just being in the beauty of the present moment. You might often seem to think without realizing it that there's some special moment in life that's coming that will be more special than life is right now. What you forget is that life doesn't get more special than what's happening right now. This here, this moment happening right now is the moment of a lifetime. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.